Hey listeners, thank you for joining me for episode two of Creme de la Crime podcast. Did you know that more people disappear from Alaska than any other state in the United States? With approximately one out of every 617 people in the state missing. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Alaska true crime. You like that you sick son of a bitch? Alaska is a very vast place, with around 663,000 square miles. A good portion of those miles are uninhabited or crowded with thick forest, foliage, and tundra, so there's no surprise that it has the highest percentage of people who stay missing. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories around why this is. But theories aside, people disappear in Alaska whether they're in the forest or just downtown. The saddest part is, due to recent statewide budget cuts, the Alaska Cold Case Unit has been disbanded. It's more than likely that these cases will remain unsolved. The first story I want to share with you is about Erin Marie Gilbert. Erin Gilbert was 24 years old when she went missing on July 1, 1995. She had moved to Anchorage, Alaska about a year earlier after her older sister Stephanie had convinced her to make the move. Stephanie's husband was in the military and was often away from home, and she didn't like being by herself with their two children all the time. Erin had been living in San Francisco, and she agreed to move in with her sister on the Elmendorf Air Force Base. Stephanie got Erin a job working as a nanny for one of her friends while she waited for cosmetology school to start in just a few weeks. Erin didn't know many people in Alaska and would often frequent Chilkoot Charlie's, which is a bar in Anchorage known to the locals as Coots. It was there that Erin met Dave, and the two hit it off right away. They had exchanged phone numbers earlier in June, and when they ran into each other at Coots on June 30th, they made a date to go to the Girdwood Forest Fair the following day. Dave told Erin he would pick her up at 4 p.m., On the morning she went missing, she was excited as she got ready for her first date. When she went outside to wait for him, she wasn't alone. Her sister and brother-in-law, along with their children, waited outside with her, eager to meet the man Aaron had told them about. Dave arrived right on time, and once he got out of the car, Aaron introduced him to her family. Her brother-in-law asked Dave to take his sunglasses off so he could get a better look at him, and he said Dave complied with a smile. Sunglasses are pretty much a requirement in Alaska during June and July because the sun never sets. Once Dave had been approved by the group, Aaron climbed into his car. Her four-year-old nephew told her that she should take a cell phone, but Aaron laughed and said that she would be fine. She gave them a final wave and the couple drove off. This was the last time Aaron's family would ever see her. The drive from Anchorage to Girdwood took about an hour. They reached the fair around 5 p.m. and spent some time walking around and looking at the different stalls. At least one witness remembered seeing Aaron and Dave at a beer garden on the fairgrounds in the early evening, and Dave said they left around 6 p.m. to go back to his car. When they got to his car, he was unable to get his car to start and assumed the battery had gone dead. 
Alaska had recently made it a requirement for drivers on a highway to have their car headlights on at all times, whether it was daylight or not. Apparently, Dave was still not used to having his headlights on during the day and had neglected to turn them off when he parked his car. Dave told Aaron that he had a friend that lived nearby and said he would walk there and get help while Aaron waited with the car. According to Dave, he walked around for two hours but was unable to find his friend's house. When he finally made it back to the parking lot, he said Aaron was gone. He said he assumed she had gotten annoyed about having to wait for so long and had left. He climbed back into his car and tried to start it, and by some miracle, the car started. Dave told police that he searched around the fair for Aaron until about 1 a.m. before decided that she must have found another way home. He waited until 7 a.m. before he called Aaron's house to see if she was there. Stephanie knew something was wrong as soon as the phone rang. Aaron had never come home the night before, which was completely out of character for her. With her husband and children, Stephanie made the one-hour drive to Girdwood and they began searching the fairgrounds for any signs of Aaron. Stephanie got someone on stage to make an announcement that they were looking for a missing person, and some of the fair's attendees joined in the search for Aaron. When it became clear that Aaron was not at the fair, Stephanie called the police. She also stopped by the studio of a local television station and got them to include Aaron's picture on the news. Police arrived and immediately conducted their own search for Aaron, coming through the fairgrounds and the woods surrounding the area. Aaron's family continued to conduct their own search as well. Kurt Gilbert, which is their father, flew to Alaska to help look for Aaron as well. Over the next several days, police conducted an extensive search of Girdwood. Tracking dogs were brought in, but they were unable to determine any sign of her. Helicopter crews completed numerous flyovers of the area, but were also unsuccessful. Detectives interviewed Aaron's family and considered the possibility that she had left voluntarily, but her sister was certain that was not the case. Aaron had too much to live for and absolutely no reason to run away. She was a mature and responsible adult, loved her job, and was about to start cosmetology school as well. She dreamed of one day becoming a successful author and loved reading to her sister's children. She was close with her family, and they all believed the thought of Aaron running away was ridiculous. Investigators were interested in speaking to Dave since he was the last known person to see Aaron before she disappeared. He cooperated in the initial stages of the investigation and gave several statements to the detectives. His account of the day Aaron went missing never varied. He insisted that he left her at the car and when he returned two hours later, she was gone. Detectives categorized Aaron's disappearance as a missing persons case and stressed that it was not a homicide investigation. They noted that they had no reason to believe that she was not alive because they had no crime scene or body to indicate otherwise. Even if she had died, it wouldn't necessarily mean that foul play was involved. Many people have died in Alaska after simply getting lost in the woods. But Aaron had never been someone to wander into the woods, and it seemed unlikely that she would have gone into any wooded area by herself. Another theory was that Dave wasn't actually the last person to see Aaron. Some people think she may have gotten tired of waiting for him to come back and decided to accept a ride from an unknown person who then possibly did something to her. Detectives were frustrated by the total lack of evidence in the case. 
They simply had no idea where she might have gone. Stephanie refused to give up the search for her younger sister and made regular trips to Girdwood to continue looking for any sign of her. She walked through miles of woods and hung up thousands of missing posters. Stephanie and her family moved to Washington in September of 1996, but she continued to return to Alaska, constantly searching for any shred of evidence that might point to Aaron's whereabouts. In 2017, the family combined their resources and offered a $35,000 reward for any information leading to Aaron or the person responsible for her disappearance. A few tips were called in, but detectives were unable to develop any solid leads. According to police, Dave Combs is not a suspect in Aaron's disappearance, but they do still have some questions they would like to ask him. He cooperated with them at first, but he hasn't spoken to anyone about the case in years. A cold case detective has made multiple attempts to speak with him, but he has not returned any phone calls. Detectives believe that Aaron made it to the fair safely, since they have witnesses that recall seeing both her and Dave there. However, they have not been able to find anyone who saw Dave during the hours that he claimed he was walking around looking for his friend's house. So this part of the story can't be confirmed. Aaron's family has not had any contact with Dave since the disappearance. They continue to hope that Aaron is still alive and believe that someone out there knows what happened to Aaron that night. They are still offering a reward for information in the hopes that someone will finally come forward and allow them to bring Aaron home. Aaron Gilbert was last seen on July 1, 1995, when she was 24 years old. She has hazel eyes and brown hair, and at the time of her disappearance, she was 5'11 and weighed around 145 pounds. When she was last seen, she was wearing a black and white striped shirt, black jeans, a black leather jacket, and brown mountain boots. Her hair had recently been cut into a short bob before she went missing. She has a tattoo of a blue flower on the right side of her chest. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Aaron Gilbert, please contact the Alaska State Police at 907-428-7200. This second case is about Marion Lynn Carver. And one thing many people don't realize is that American cruise ships sail under foreign flags. This allows them to circumvent U.S. laws and taxes. This often means that when a crime is committed on a cruise ship, it's rarely investigated properly or promptly reported. An average of 10 Americans disappear from cruise ships every single year. The disappearance of Marion Carver is surrounded in mystery. She didn't live in Alaska and didn't disappear from the state either. In August 2004, 40-year-old Marion Carver boarded the Mercury, which was one of Royal Caribbean's celebrity cruise ships. She was going on a seven-day cruise from Seattle, Washington to Alaska. Her steward, Domingo Montero, said she was personable, relaxed, and looking forward to the cruise. She told him she had plans to go upstairs later, but wasn't planning on visiting the dining room. When she mentioned the same thing the next night, he suggested ordering room service and then brought her two sandwiches at her request. This is the last time anyone ever saw Marion. 
When Domingo checked on Marion's cabin the following morning, her bed had not been slept in. A generous tip and a manila envelope with unknown contents had been left behind, along with all of her belongings, including her only shoes. He reported her missing right away and continued to report her missing for the remaining five days of the cruise until his supervisor ordered him to do his job and forget it. Once the cruise ended with no sign of her, Domingo raised his concerns once again with his supervisor, who then told him to box up Marion's personal belongings and bring them to his office. No one secured her cabin. No one collected any evidence. The supervisor put her belongings in his own personal locker, except for her clothing, which was quickly donated to charity. No one filed a police report, and no one even attempted to contact her family. When the Royal Caribbean finally contacted the FBI, Marion had already been missing for five weeks. Meanwhile, her 13-year-old daughter, who lived with her dad, was worried when she couldn't reach her mom on the phone. She contacted Marion's dad named Kendall Carver, and he reported his daughter missing to the Cambridge, Massachusetts police when he couldn't reach her either. After investigating her financial records, the police discovered credit card charges for the round trip to Seattle and the Alaskan cruise. None of Marion's family members or friends had any idea she'd gone on a cruise, but this wasn't out of character for her. Marion was single, independent, and she had been known to take other trips when she needed to clear her head, without necessarily letting anyone know. When her father contacted Royal Caribbean to confirm his daughter had been on the ship, it took them three days to call him back. At this point, Marion had already been missing for 26 days. A risk management manager for the cruise line told Kendall that no alarm had been raised after his daughter's disappearance because it was normal for people to leave their belongings behind and normal for them to suddenly change their rooms without notice. Kendall's living hell was about to begin. According to his own words, he was met with roadblocks whenever he tried to get answers about what happened to his daughter. They told him that the surveillance cameras automatically erased any footage after only three days. The cruise line maintained they had no reports about his daughter during the cruise and refused to reveal the name of Marion Stewart. Completely frustrated, Kendall hired one of the largest private investigation firms in the country, but this resulted in more questions than answers. The investigator was allowed onto the ship, but he wasn't permitted to speak to anyone, including the ship's security officer. He did report that it was a short walk from Marion's room to an observation deck 100 feet above the waterline. She easily could have been pushed or even jumped from this deck. Kendall hired Massachusetts lawyers to dig into the case, which resulted in two cruise line employees giving telephone depositions in January of 2005. This was when Kendall learned that someone had cared about his daughter, and he was even more upset when he discovered that a cruise line supervisor had brushed off Domingo's fears. The supervisor who had dismissed the concerns was fired and ushered off the ship before the FBI could ever speak to him. He has never been named or located, though many believe he found work on another ship. The manila envelope and the money Marion had left in her room disappeared with him, along with her personal belongings. Finally, feeling out of options, Kendall filed a lawsuit against the Royal Caribbean. The case went to trial in August of 2005, 
which was when he finally saw a copy of the security report, which he felt clearly indicated a cover-up. He also learned he'd been lied to about the surveillance footage, which had actually been kept for one month and not three days. This meant there should have still been footage from the time his daughter disappeared when he first contacted them. During the trial, the cruise line released an official statement to the media, claiming that Marion had, quote, severe emotional problems, had attempted suicide before, and appears to have committed suicide on our ship, end quote. Her dad went on to win his lawsuit, but it was a hollow victory. He had spent $75,000 on investigators and lawyers and still had no idea what had happened to Marion. Sadly, Kendall passed away in December of 2019 without ever finding out what happened to his daughter. Before he died, Kendall founded the International Cruise Victims, which is an advocacy and support group in 2006. I want to share a few weird details that I found about Marion's story. The first, Marion booked her ticket on the cruise only two days before it sailed and brought two handbags but no suitcases on board. She had one pair of shoes and one dress, both of which were left in her room when she vanished. If she walked to the observation deck to commit suicide, that means she did it in her underwear. Second, Marion didn't use the cruise ship's currency card during the two days she was on board. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you know this is weird because these cards are required for most purchases on the ship. Third, there was no record of her ever leaving the ship. And last, a former crew member had contacted Kendall and told him that Marion had been having a relationship with another unidentified crew member. It came out that when her marriage ended in divorce in 2000 and she lost custody of her daughter, she sank into a deep depression and threatened suicide. Though there is no evidence she ever attempted suicide in the past, this history gave the Royal Caribbean the ammunition that it needed. However, Domingo insisted that she did not seem upset, out of sorts, sad, or angry. And if she had planned on committing suicide, why did she buy a round-trip ticket? If the manila envelope had contained a suicide note, why wouldn't the cruise line release it since it would have proven their theory? I also saw a few articles from years ago that remains had been found that had been suspected to be Marion, but I never found anything that followed up confirming for sure that they were so that leads me to believe they ended up discovering that they were not hers. Marion Carver was last seen on August 28, 2004, on the cruise ship Mercury. She is a Caucasian woman and was 40 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was 5'7 and weighed around 100 pounds, and she had red hair and hazel eyes. Her case is classified as lost or injured missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Marion Carver, please contact the Cambridge, Massachusetts Police Department at 617-349-3211. That's all I have for this week's episode. But if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email crimdelacrimepodcast7 at gmail.com. Head over to Instagram and follow me at crimdelacrimepod 
And don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.